Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Starkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at starkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. What an uh, awesome picture of Omarion. I'm glad you guys got to see that. That was beautiful. Okay, so yeah, great. Thanks, Tanner, for uh, putting that together. Um, since I'm up here, before we get started, I do want to put a plug in for the youth ministry. We've got these um, out in the lobby, and uh, it's our summer schedules, a su- summer event schedule. We'll meet 6 to 8 uh, here during the summer, and then there's going to be a few days where we'll be at the park. But anyway, we got these summer schedules here, and if you have or know someone that has a student uh, grade, going into grade 6 through 12, Pick one of these up. Would love to have them attend some of our summer stuff going on. Also, if you are a parent who's new here and you have a kid going in to sixth grade through 12th grade, would love to have you join us on May 22nd uh, after the second church service, after this service, and we will have a new student parent meeting over in the student center. If you haven't seen the student center, it's really cool. Go over there and check it out sometime. But we'll be having a new student parent meeting Um, for kids who are just now coming to youth, and lunch will be provided, so get signed up for that. So we're in the month of May, means the end of school, means freedom for students, and more so probably for teachers, and means a lot of other stuff, graduation, uh, senior nights, all these different sporting events and and things like that are coming to an end, and um, as a youth pastor, some of the kids like me, so they, they invite Kelsey and I to some of these things, so we get invitations to these things, and there's a Bible verse that comes on a lot of these invitations that hangs up at a lot of graduation parties. And when you go to the Christian schools, at least on senior night, they announce a favorite Bible verse when the person walks out. Um, and the one that, that I think is like king of Bible verses, I'm going to share with you guys. And, and um, I asked the youth on Wednesday this question, and it took him a couple guesses but somebody finally got it. They said, oh, it's gotta be Philippians 4.13, somebody said, and that's what Joel said. But in the games and stuff I go to, that's not the one. It actually is in the Old Testament, and the kids have no idea who said it or why he said it. Anybody wanna try and give it a guess? Jeremiah 29.11, somebody say it, yeah. That's right, Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11 is the verse. Let's read it right now. It says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you future and a hope. So if, if this is like your verse, if this is what you hung up at your graduation party, if this was on an invitation that you sent out, like I'm not knocking you for that. This is an awesome verse. This is a verse that has encouraged believers for thousands of years. It's a great verse, but what I want us to do today is examine the context, first of all, of this verse and what this verse means and who wrote it, who he was writing it to, and then I want us to go to the New Testament, to a familiar passage to you guys, and see what happens when the plan that we have for ourselves looks very different than the plan that God has for us. First, let's look into Jeremiah. Like I said, students couldn't tell me anything about Jeremiah couldn't tell me who he was writing to. So Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, and he is writing to um, those that are going into exile into Babylon. Jeremiah, we'll start in verse 7. I just want us to, to read the, the ver- few verses before this and a few verses after this. Starting in verse 7 in Jeremiah 29, it says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare 
you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So these people he's writing to, they are experiencing horror and terror that's indescribable. What, what they're going through, we couldn't even imagine. Some of them, to the point that in the siege, when Jerusalem was under siege, that they became cannibalistic, eating each other's children. This is the people that he's writing to. This is what they're going through. There were three different groups that were taken to Babylon um, in five, or excuse me, 605 BC, 597, and in 586. And he's telling them to pray for this city where they're going. These people that have committed these atrocities on Jerusalem, pray for them, pray for that city because their welfare also means your welfare. So he's writing to these exiles and he's also telling them, as you saw here, not to listen to these false prophets, people who are saying things to you that are completely inaccurate, don't listen to them because what they're telling them is this is gonna be short-lived. You'll come back soon. These are the same kind of false prophets that were telling them before that um, God was not upset with them, that they were not under judgment when they actually were. In verse 10, we see how long it is actually that they're going to be in exile. He says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. So he's writing to these people who've rejected God, they're being exiled, and yet God still has a plan for them. 70 years later, he says, you're gonna come back. And that was fulfilled from 605 BC to 536 BC, and the people did come back. Still through this terrible situation, God has a plan for his people. And that's where the verse comes that we see on a graduation cap or on a coffee mug. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. This is encouraging. It's encouraging that God thinks about his people, that he has plans for his people, that he has thoughts toward his people. And we can just quote Jeremiah 29, 11. It's an awesome verse, absolutely. But this verse, like many others, we can take it out of context to mean what we want it to mean. You know, God has plans for me to be an athlete. God has plans for me to be wealthy. God has plans for me to have a great family, a great career, to make lots of money, whatever it might be. Let's keep reading what comes after 11. It says in verses 12 through 14, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So, so here's where you find that God's plans for these people include them turning to him in repentance. It includes his people seeking him with all their heart. He says, you will call on me. You will pray to me. You will seek me. You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And God's promise in verse 11 is to a broken people who will be turning to God in humility from the plans that they had and turning to him. You know, God, God had promised to restore Israel when they would repent. This was a promise that was given in the wilderness and it's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, but um, before they even possessed the promised land, this was told to them. 
that, that when this happened, when you're taken into exile, when you're taken away from your land, when you turn to me and repent, I'll be there. When you call on my name, I'll be there. So does that mean that Jeremiah 29, 11 does not apply to us in any way? No, absolutely not. Um, that's not what it means. If you're in Christ, if you're born again, if you're a child of God, he absolutely has plans for you too. And if he had plans in the old covenant for you, then he has plans certainly in the new covenant through Jesus. You know, but I, I would submit to you today, though, that um, those plans are not so much about how much you have, what you possess, the job you have, what you major in, or how much money you make, or what you drive, as it has to do with you conforming to the image of Christ and following Jesus wherever he would lead, lead you, being submissive to God and his plans and his purposes, okay? So, of course, God is concerned with the minor details of our life that, that can be major details to us. God is concerned about that. He is a personal God. He is a relational God. He calls us to pray on all things, and he wants his children to seek him in all things. He's big enough to create everything and to sustain everything and, and personal enough that he would hear your every prayer. But oftentimes what we do is we look at these temporary things, the stuff that we have, what we're doing with, with, such, um, with such an outlook that it's like it's everything when really it's just something that's temporary. And we want God to bless us now, to prosper us now. Jeremiah 29, 11, you said you had plans for me. You said you were gonna prosper me. You said it was for my welfare. When a lot of times what we do is we have our own plans and we wanna insert God into the plans that we've already made for ourselves and for our family and for our friends. What about the people who are 30 years old and they get told, hey, in 70 years, you're gonna get a comeback from exile. I mean, not great news for them, right? So, um, God's an eternal God who views things with an eternal lens, not a temporary lens. His plans are his plans, not our plans. And what, what we do is we tend to make big plans that are like personal in our personal life and then separate that from our spiritual life over here. So we've got personal plans and then we've got like a spiritual life that we've made for ourselves. And then we try to put some spiritual life into our personal plans and ask God, hey, will you bless this? When we've already decided what we're gonna do. I'm gonna steal this from Ed Gallion. We had the, the Wednesday prayer meeting and he and I and Joel were out there uh, when we meet on Wednesday mornings. And um, I have no idea now saying this from the book of Galatians, how he got on this or how we got to talking about this. But as soon as I heard it, I like started making a note in my phone. I was like, I'm gonna use that in the sermon on Sunday. But he, he uh, kind of gave something that's an illustration for this. He talked about like, you know, um, getting a mortgage and maybe you don't think much about it, or maybe there's not even much prayer that goes into it. And it's just like, and, and I'm kind of throwing this stuff in there, ad-libbing to what he said a little bit. But, um, you know, I've got a bigger family now. It's got an extra bedroom. It's four bedrooms. We, we can have people over. It's a good location. Um, it's a good school system. It's got a nice yard. It's a price that we can afford. Not much thought about it. Market's hot. Need to get something now. Buy the house. Not much prayer behind it, not much, is, is this actually God's plan or God's purpose right now? Or is this just what we want? And then maybe things start to go not so good. Maybe you lose a job. Maybe things in the community aren't as good as you thought they were gonna be. And then we start to pray, Lord, please bless this house. Bless our family. Help us to be able to pay this. 
I think about choosing a college major. A lot of times uh, we go to college and it's like I'm going to choose what I'm going to do because I'm kind of interested in this thing. I heard the classes are not that hard. Um, I still think that it could make a pretty good income. God, will, will you please bless this thing? And we choose what we're going to do. And then it's like we're cramming for tests, studying, and then we're really praying, right? See, that's our personal life. That's our personal life. The plans that we have for our, ourselves, and then we try to insert God into those plans. And then it comes to our church life, our spiritual life. And then we all of a sudden need this confirmation through like a dream or a vision or God to audibly speak to us to make any decisions. And it's not a bad thing to seek confirmation from God, but a lot of times we seek confirmation from God when the confirmation has been given to us in his word already. Let me give um, an example of this, something that how we kind of separate personal and and spiritual. Maybe pastor or, or someone tells you, like, I've been seeing you serve and stuff. I really think this would be a good mission trip for you. I really think it would be good for you to go on this. And so you respond, you know, I need to pray about it, see if it's, you know, what I need to do. And that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Pray about it. And you continue to pray about it. And you pray about it the next year. You pray about it some more and you pray about some more. And you haven't had a dream or a vision and God hadn't spoken audibly to you. So I just don't know if it's what I'm supposed to do. Well, he did say in his word, to go throughout the world and preach the gospel to all of humanity. He did say to take the gospel to all the nations, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, it's $2,000. It's $2,000, just don't know if that's where God wants us spending this money right now. I need to make sure, I need to know that this is where we need to spend that money. Did you pray the same way when you spent 5,000 on an ATV or a golf cart? Did you need God to come to you in a vision then to let you know that you needed to make that purchase? Yeah, well, I just don't know if I'm ready. I don't know, what about this, what about that? But, but we're all ready for a good vacation, right? We want to insert a little bit of Jesus into the personal plans that we've made, but God's plans for our life aren't just spiritual. God wants all of your life. He doesn't just want your spiritual life. He wants all of you. And his plan might be something that you've never really even considered and you're not going to consider it because you're so consumed and we're so consumed with our plans. You know, my plan was to be an athlete, and that lasted for a little while, and then that was over. And then, um, stupidly, still in college, I had a friend that was my friend in, in high school, and we had a plan that um, we were going to graduate and move to the Virgin Islands. We were going to be scuba instructors. We were going to live on a catamaran. And then we got girlfriends, and it got shot down really fast. But we had this plan, and I probably could have quoted Jeremiah 29, 11 and said, you know, well, God has plans for me. This is God's plan, and find a way to twist that and make it God's plan by inserting a little Jesus into my personal life. But what happens, and this is what we're going to look at this morning for the rest of the time, what happens when we're confronted with God and we find out that the plan that he has is not the plan that we had? How do we respond then? We're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 18 in Scripture, verses 18 through 27, that you guys are going to be familiar with. We're going to look at a young man who wanted eternal life. He wanted eternal life, but when it meant forsaking his own comforts and his own desires and submitting to the lordship of Jesus in his life, he simply couldn't do it. So let's read the passage, and then we'll break it down. Okay, verses 18 through 27. It says, and as a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus seeing that he had become sad said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Many of you probably know this story as the rich young ruler. In Matthew 19, 22, in Matthew's parallel account, the man is described as young. In verse 18 here, he's described as a ruler. And then in verse 23, we find out that he's rich. So he's the rich young ruler. And some of you guys might think, I'm not rich, I'm not young, and I'm not a ruler. So what's this have to do with me? But first, let me just touch on one of those. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I'm not going to pull out all the stats now, but Joel sure did on how we are rich. If you are here, if you drove up here this morning, you are rich. Maybe uh, compared to the rest of the world, maybe you think you don't know how much credit card debt I got. If somebody, if an institution was willing to give you a credit card that you could rack up debt on it, you are extremely rich compared to most of the globe. I was driving by um, the Food City over there, like the, the new one around ball camp the other day and saw the big storage facility. And I was just thinking like, we build super nice buildings to store our things that don't fit at our houses and in our garages. Like we are rich. Just wanted to, to put that to bed right there and then we'll go forward. All right, so the first point I want you to see is a misguided question. A misguided question. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again. It says, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, the first problem here is the question. I would imagine that many of you guys already see the question that he asked that is a problem and what the problem is. The ruler is under the impression that he could do something in himself to earn or attain eternal life. What must I do? What can I do? You know, the Jews had gotten to the point where they genuinely and honestly believed that they could earn eternal life, that they could do something of themselves to have eternal life. They really believe this. And so the language of the question tells you what the guy believes. His natural thought process was that he could earn eternal life. Now I want to stop there and say like, this guy, he's not far off because he's standing face to face with Jesus who is eternal life. That's what John 17, three says, to know him. And he's standing face to face with him and he's wanting to know the question, What's eternal life? He had all these things, all this stuff that the world would say is great. But yet at the same time, he was still missing something. He's searching for something. And, and that's how chasing after the world, how storing riches will leave us in this life, wanting for something more, trying to fill something that's still empty, that's not quite right. And so he misses the mark when he assumes that there's something that he can do. You know, maybe you've grown up in a Protestant church and you understand that like, well, no, it's, it's, through, it's by grace through faith that you're saved. It's, you know, there's nothing that you can do. And you understood the problem with that question that he asked when I read it. 
But we still do the same thing sometimes, even after we've been saved in a, saved in a different way. This guy, what he wants is, is a checklist. He wants a checklist of the right things that he can do. He's got all these things in his personal life, and he wants to say, check, check. All right, I want some eternal life too. Let me add some eternal life to that checklist. You know, we, we get our kids to school, get them to their ball games. We eat kind of healthy. We went to all of the appointments and things that we had that month. We attended church two times that month. Like check, 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 and put our spiritual life into, um, into a checklist, into a checklist, excuse me. So he wanted to add something to his life, to his plan that he already had for himself. He doesn't want radical life change. He doesn't want a whole new life plan. And Jesus requires radical life change and faithful discipleship, though. He makes you a new creation, and he transforms you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You don't give him some of your life, but you become a living sacrifice. As Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This guy didn't want to be a living sacrifice. He wanted to live his life, his plan. He was rich. He was a ruler. He was a young guy. Check, check, check. Let me make sure I've got something filled in my spiritual life too. Let me make sure that I will go to heaven when I die. And then verse 19, we see a second problem here and, uh, that Jesus addresses. And Jesus says, um, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So is Jesus saying here that he is not good or that he is not good. Well, no, that's, that's not what he's saying. Uh, that would not align with any of the rest of scripture. But the word good teacher here, what, what the guy's using, this was a word that was um, for God and God alone. They did not call other rabbis. They did not call other teachers good teacher. They, didn't, they just didn't call people um, what that translates to. And so Jesus, he's not necessarily denying that he's good or that he's God, but he's calling the guy out. Do you understand when you call me that, what you're saying? Because that is reserved for God alone. And, and later we'll see it's clear that this man didn't really believe Jesus was God. So he's calling Jesus, who he believes is a man, something that is reserved for God alone. Again, his thinking was that man could be good in and of themselves, but Jesus let him know that no one but God is good. He's challenging his perception by saying, do you realize what you're doing when you're calling me God? Do you understand who I am? Do you recognize who I am? And when you come to Jesus, that's a question we have to answer. Is he God in your life? Not just, is he a good teacher? Not just, is he a historical character? Is he God in your life? So, so Jesus, he could have explained to this man how this question was off. He could have explained that it's like bad wording. But instead, he starts to give some commands that any Jewish person, any Jewish person especially educated like this guy, would be able to recite in their sleep. So he goes to the Ten Commandments. And um, the second point is a prideful response. I want to see the commandments that Jesus gives him and then the response that the guy follows up with. Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now you might have noticed here that all the commandments that Jesus gives him are commandments that have to do with how he relates to others. 
how he loves others in his own life. In Matthew's account, he actually adds in Matthew 19, 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the man's response to that, has he loved his neighbor as himself? Yeah, I've done that. I've done all that. Maybe you're here today and you think, yeah, I've done that pretty well or I've done that perfectly. And like Joel says a lot of times, baloney. And Jesus is gonna follow up with a command that's gonna prove that this isn't true. We're gonna see with what Jesus follows up with that he does not really love his neighbors as himself. You know, perhaps this man was so self-absorbed that he just couldn't see his own sin. And when we can't see our own sin, when we can't recognize sin in our life, then we don't see our need for a savior. And that's what legalism does. It leads us to thinking that we can keep, you know, the law of the Old Testament perfectly or, or today that we can keep God's moral law perfectly. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Everybody's fallen short of God's glory, but here we have a man who's standing face to face with God and is telling him, yeah, I've done all that. I've kept that from my youth. You know, God could have struck him down right there, but that's not what he does. And Jesus isn't harsh with him. Jesus isn't harsh with him. Actually, he loves him and he challenges him. The third point I want you to see is a clear command. Jesus gives this guy a clear command. He wants something to do, so Jesus is going to give him something to do. When Jesus heard this, he said, you, uh, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. In Mark 10, 21, that's where I got that Jesus was loving when he said this to him, because it says Jesus looking at him loved him. Loving him didn't mean that he said to him, yeah, you're right, keep doing as you're doing. Loving him meant that Jesus noticed something that was really keeping him from following him, and he called it out. That's how Jesus loved him. He doesn't argue with him. He simply gives him a command in love. And the response to this command will prove where the man's heart is really at. So in verse 22, Jesus says, one thing you still lack. This guy had everything, right? In the, in the eyes of the world, he would have had everything, okay? One thing that you still lack. Some put it this way. Maybe you guys have heard this, this uh, illustration before. You're climbing a ladder your whole life. You're doing well. You're climbing the top of the ladder only to find out that it's leaned against the wrong building. And you get to the top and you find out that building is a wobbly foundation, but there's a firm foundation in Christ and there was another ladder and it wasn't the one that you had given your life to. What are we striving for? What's our foundation? Only if we're building our lives on Christ are we truly living well. So Jesus sees this roadblock to this guy following the Lord and he gives him three commands. He tells him to sell, to distribute, and to follow. Sell all he has, distribute it to the poor, and come and follow him. And in these commands, Jesus proves, and I'll show you both, that this man does not love his neighbor as himself, nor does he love the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, and strength. He points him back to the first table of the law when he calls him to do this and to follow him. Jesus challenged the man to demonstrate his love for his neighbor by giving all that he had. And he challenged the man to demonstrate his love for God by choosing Jesus over his wealth and material possessions. Love God 
Love people more than you love your money and possessions is basically what he's saying to him. But this isn't what this guy came for. This wasn't what he wanted to hear. He had plans for his life, and Jesus, in his mind, now is trying to mess up those plans by giving him these commands, not the commands that he was hoping for. He's calling him to forsake his own plans and to follow Jesus and his plan. You know, the ruler wanted eternal life, but he didn't ask for that kind of commitment. He didn't ask for that kind of obedience. That was just too much for him. What level of obedience is just too much for you? Like, what, what is the thing if God said, do this, that it's like in your head, I do not know if I could give that up. I, don't, I do not know if I could forsake that thing or that commitment. Where God wants you to do something and you're just not sure if you can. I heard a pastor say that he's so thankful, and I'll reiterate today, so thankful that there wasn't a point of obedience that was too far for Jesus. It wasn't like, Father, I'll take a flogging for you, but I'm not, I'm not gonna get the, the nails in my wrist. There wasn't a point of obedience that was too far for Jesus. But for us, oftentimes our actions show that we value something more than we value knowing Christ intimately. And that was the case with this man. He, he looked through things, he looked at life with this temporary lens and his plans for living a certain lifestyle and how he preferred God to bless him in the meantime. And when God in the flesh was right in front of him, presenting him with a different plan, a better plan, it was too much. I can't do it. That's what we're gonna see based on his actions here in a second. I feel like I always bring up uh, experiencing God and that's because we do it with um, the book by Henry Blackaby because we do it with students and we've gone through it many times. But something that he talks about in that book is a crisis of belief. And, and this is when we face a scenario, as he puts it, that our faith is tested and how we respond determines what we believe about God. Think of a student maybe goes to a party, they're with people, they're with their friends, and they're pressured to do things that they know that they're not supposed to do. They know is wrong, but at the same time, they know these people probably aren't going to keep hanging out with them, asking them to do stuff if they don't at least do some of this stuff because, like, they've started asking them less and less to come do things. That's a crisis of belief. Which way do I go? What's this, you know, which way do I follow in this situation? Maybe it's giving financially, your time just of yourself, and you've been going through a Bible study, maybe um, you've just been in church on Sundays and it feels like, I feel like we're supposed to serve more. I feel like God is calling us to do more. But we've got so much going on. We've got this sport and this sport and we've got this thing going on on Tuesday night and this thing going on on Saturday and I'm just not sure if we can balance that right now. It's a crisis of belief in that situation. And when we face a crisis of belief, faith and action are required and this means making major adjustments in our life to follow the Lord in obedience. And our obedience to God reveals our love for God. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You know, this often means sacrificing our own plans for God's plans and for his purpose. And for the rich young ruler, this crisis of belief was just too much. Verse 23, Luke 18, it says, When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Matthew 19, 22, it says in this, this same story, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This guy was so close. He was searching for truth, and he's standing right in front of the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He said, I can't, it's too much. 
I can't. It shows that he had an idol in his life. It shows that he had an idol that that God knew about, that Jesus knew about standing right there. He couldn't love others well because he didn't love God well. And his reaction and his unwillingness to obey Jesus in that moment, to sell, to distribute, and to follow, it kept him from being Jesus' disciple. And, And we see Jesus call many of his disciples in a similar way, to give up something. He called Peter and Andrew and James and John, leave the fishing nets, come and follow. He called Matthew the tax collector, leave the tax booth, come and follow. They had to leave behind something to go with Jesus, but for this rich young ruler, it was not worth it to leave behind his riches. He wasn't willing to go there. His actions show that he valued something more. He valued his wealth more. He broke in many commandments in his own heart. Now stop right there and say, it's a mistake for us to read this passage and say, this applies, this is what every single Christian should be doing, walking around with only the clothes on their back and give away every single thing that they have. For this man, he had an obstacle to his discipleship. And um, the obstacle was his finances. The obstacle was the wealth that he possessed. Some people, that they're able to use their finances and their resources to bless others and for God's glory and for his kingdom. But on the other hand, here's the other thing we don't need to do. We don't need to read this passage and think that it applies to no believers. We don't need to read this and think, think that it applies to no Christians. For some believers, the best thing we could do is to escape the materialism that consumes us. C.T. Studd, I mentioned him the last time I preached too, if you were here, you probably don't remember it, but um, he comes to mind when I think of this. He was a, a famous, um, famous missionary. He was a famous cricket player before then, great cricket player in Britain in the 1800s, and his family was worth what is estimated today about $22 million, okay? Had lots of wealth, lots of fame, And he left it all and became a missionary to China. He said, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes face to face with eternity? So he gives up his career. He gives up his his wealth. And he established this mission organization in China. And then he does the same thing, establishes another one in Africa. He died in Congo at the age of 70 in Africa in his home there. And he said, I know that cricket or I knew that cricket would not last, honor would not last, nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. This morning, is there something that's holding you back from following Jesus the way that he calls the rich young ruler to follow him, the way that he called C.T. Studd to follow him? And you can find the answer a lot of times by asking yourself, what do I value most? Now, the church, the Sunday school answer for that, Jesus, Jesus is first in my life. I value Jesus most. But if Jesus gave you a command, something to do, is there something that would be too far that you couldn't give up? Is it a hobby? Is it a job? Is it commitments? Is it something with family that you already have going on that you just couldn't give that up? In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is what being a disciple looks like, denying yourself. What holds you back? from truly being a disciple and from being discipled. Time, summer plans, a lifestyle for yourself that's just too comfortable to relinquish. Jesus tells a short parable in Matthew chapter 13 to illustrate how valuable his kingdom and how valuable he should be to us. Matthew 13, 44, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field when a man found and covered up excuse me, um, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. 
who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's illustrating that nothing should be more valuable than him. Nothing should be more valuable than his kingdom. But this wasn't the case for the rich young ruler. So instead, according to Matthew chapter 19, that account, he went away with a lot of possessions and a lot of sorrow. And this is what happens a lot of times. We try to find our hope, our future, and what we have and in things we possess. It might provide temporary satisfaction, but joy and peace and knowing God through Jesus are eternal. Final thing I want us to see this morning is an eternal truth. An eternal truth. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So as this man leaves Jesus, Jesus turns to those who are following, to his disciples and to others, and used this exaggerated illustration to basically say, and every commentary almost that you can read will say, basically he is saying, it is impossible for you to have eternal life. Can't happen. I know you, you probably read that and that's just the normal reading of what you see, but that's what it's saying. It's impossible for you to attain eternal life. That's what these guys would have understood him saying and you'll see that by their follow-up question. Last week, Joel mentioned how in a lot of areas in the world and places we go, um, it's, and, and just throughout human history, it's more poor people that come to Christ. A lot of times wealthier people think that they, they have things pretty figured out. And there's poor people who are just trying to find hope in something. They're searching for something. You know, Jesus teaches us that riches can be an obstacle to the kingdom you know, we usually think of poverty as an obstacle, and it absolutely is in lots of ways, but Jesus teaches us that riches can present a serious problem. Riches can make us so satisfied with this life that we're not longing for eternal life, and riches can be sought at the expense of seeking after God. In Psalm 62, sin, it says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. So, when these men hear about this, that rich people can't enter the kingdom of heaven, it makes no sense to them because same as in today's society, then a lot of people viewed, if you have wealth, then God has blessed you. So they believe that God had blessed those that had wealth. So if those that God had blessed cannot have eternal life, then certainly them, these poor fishermen, the people following Jesus, they couldn't have eternal life. So that's why they ask him in verse 26, it says, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? This was bad news for these disciples. They felt if the rich people couldn't be saved, they sure couldn't be saved. You know, and at the time, lots of these people are following Jesus because he's gaining popularity. He's this, this popular teacher, this rabbi. They believe that he's gonna challenge Rome. They think that if they, if they connect themselves, if they tie themselves to the hip with Jesus, that it's gonna to lead to prosperity and wealth for them and it will prosper them. So this was bad news for them. And since I said earlier that all of us are rich, then it's really bad news for us too. But thankfully for us, there's good news that follows. The same as in Romans 6, 23, when, uh, when Paul writes that the wages of sin is death, there's good news that follows. The good news is there's a free gift and it's eternal life in Christ. 
Jesus says in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is possible for a rich man to be saved. It's possible for a poor man to be saved. Not because of a man's assets or lack thereof, what they have, but because of the God-man Jesus who made a way. You know, there's lots of rich people in scripture who would be hurting if they had no way to be saved. King David, who was a man after God's own heart. Abraham, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, the New Testament, Joseph in the Old Testament. There's lots of people I could, I could keep rattling off. It wasn't about what they had or, or what they didn't have, but the point is that no person can be saved based off of their own efforts. Salvation is from God's grace alone, and it's the righteousness from Jesus that we attain through faith. Theologian G. Campbell Morgan said this, man is ever attempting to personally and socially enter into a kingdom of God by endeavors with men, and this never succeeds. With God, the thing is possible. So what I wanna close with here today is, is God's plan for salvation and also for the life when we've received that salvation. And I think that Ephesians 2, eight through 10 really illustrates this. Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship. Again, he's writing to people who who are believers here. I want us to understand that. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. His plan is an eternal plan to rescue those who would receive Christ, who would believe in his name. His plan is to save souls with this free gift of grace. His plan is for those who have been saved to be sanctified, to conform to the image of Christ, um, to be transformed, to be new people and to walk with him and to follow him day by day. And for this rich young ruler, that's not what he wanted to hear. On that day for him to follow the Lord, it meant he needed to sell what he had and give it all away. You know, for us, it might mean a life change that we didn't see coming either. God's plan for those who are in Christ is that we walk with him day by day in a relationship with him, that we're prepared to be flexible when he calls us to something that we were not anticipating, when he calls us in a different direction than what we had planned, and that we are submissive to the lordship of Jesus in our lives, that we become more like Jesus through the sanctification process, and then that we experience God working through us as he accomplishes his good plans and his purposes through us. It's an awesome plan. You can't stay where you're at though and go with Jesus at the same time. The rich young ruler, he didn't understand this plan. It wasn't his idea. It wasn't how he wanted to live his life. It didn't fit within his checklist. It demanded too much in the moment. Demanded too much commitment. You know, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to this guy. Maybe um, after Jesus rose from the dead, maybe this guy came to him and, and was born again. I, we don't know. But the great thing about our God is that his grace is always sufficient and that forgiveness would still be available to this guy. It doesn't matter if our goodness amounts to nothing when we have a savior whose grace is enough. 
You know, God's plan is an eternal plan to rescue people from themselves and to set us on a path with him forever as we walk with him day by day. We, we live in a time and an age that says, I want what I want and I want it now. We live in a world that tells us to get what we can get for ourselves right now. And it completely neglects an eternal life that awaits. It totally focuses on the temporary and what you can build for yourself. But God gives us a plan that includes an eternal future that is real. And Jesus, he gives us who offers real hope, real future, real joy, and an eternal home. And it's found in Christ alone. Would you guys just bow your heads this morning for me? You know, maybe you're here today and you're like the rich young ruler. You've never received Christ. You've never received that gift of grace into your life to begin with. There's stuff that you've just held on to and that you won't relinquish and it's kept you from really surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus in your life. I want you to know this morning that there's a free gift of grace and there's nothing that you can do to earn it, but it's offered to you. And if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart this morning and you wanna receive that, you can pray something like this. God, I confess that I am a sinner Lord, I have chased after my own pleasures and my own desires for too long. Today, Lord, I repent of my sin. I come to you in faith. I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God, that you lived a perfect life, that you died a death that I deserve on a cross and that you rose again from the dead. And today, I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Give me your Holy Spirit. Make me a new man. Make me a new woman. Today I declare that you are Lord and that you are my savior. Thank you, God, for saving me. And then maybe there's others here that there's something that maybe was revealed to you today that you value, that's just so valuable to you. that You feel like, man, if God called me to give that up, I just couldn't do it. Lay that down. Let Jesus be the most valuable thing in your life. Understand that his plans are better than ours no matter how long we've had something planned, no matter how long we've decided something was gonna be the way that it was. And be submissive to him as Lord of your life and be willing to walk with him day by day wherever it is that he leads. God, I pray for this church and I pray for those Lord, who you're speaking to right now, who you're revealing things in your life, you're showing things to them that maybe they need to lay down at your feet. Lord, your plan is great and you are great. And we thank you, Jesus, for your grace. And we thank you for dying for us and making a way so that we could have eternal life. Lord, I praise you and I thank you this morning. It's the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.